When I was 27 years old, I left Southern Seminary, my wife and I, and we just had a newborn baby, and we moved to Opelika, Alabama, and there I had the great privilege of serving at a great church, and I think the biggest reason why God led me there was to put me with the man that would pastor me and lead me and teach me in so many ways. You've heard me mention his name, Steve Scoggins. He and his wife are coming through LaGrange to visit this week, so it will be great to have a meal with them, fellowship with Steve and Karen. Steve was a great pastor, friend, mentor, and I cannot tell you how many times as an associate pastor when I would do my job that week of contacting folks who filled out worship registration cards, first-time visitors, I heard the same thing over and over again. They said, we got to the church, and there was this short, stocky guy, kind of balding, with a big smile on his face, and he ushered us and took us to our seat. He was so friendly. And then we had the music and the worship time, and that guy that ushered me to my seat as a first-time visitor stepped up to the platform and started preaching the sermon. I bet I heard that a hundred times. Folks were so impressed to know that the senior pastor of a large church would take the time to usher them to their seats. Now, for those of us that worked at the church, who served at the church, if you were on the usher team, you better get out of the way of Steve Scoggins. Everybody else, he was going to find that new person and get them to their seats. But what made it so great for new people was they didn't know his identity. They had no idea he was the pastor. And that impressed people so much because once they realized he was the pastor, wow, the pastor helped me find my seat. What a good first impression. When we know a person's identity, we know how to relate to that person, how that we should think about that person. We just know them better when we know who they are. How many times in your life have you been in situations and conversations and and just thought, this person just doesn't know my heart. They don't know who I am. It leads to conflict and problems. Identity is so critical. We live in a world where Satan has stolen our identity, where we're confused about who we are. Gender confusion Confusion every way around. Identity is attacked by the enemy, but the Bible tells us who we are. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 again, verses 9 through 11. The Bible tells us who we are. We learned last week that God says to us that we are His adopted, beloved, chosen children. We learned last week as well that we are 
royal priests, that we have direct access to God. No more priests needed. No more separation from God. The veil of the temple has been torn in two because Jesus, our high priest, has made us a kingdom of priests with direct access to God. And we learn that we are a holy nation, but even more than that, a holy bride. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. Let's look again at 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, and let's see four more truths about who we are. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Number one, you belong to the Lord God as his slave. You belong to the Lord God as his slave. 1 Peter 2, 9, he says we are a people for his possession. We belong to God. We are his possession. We are slaves of our master. This is consistently how Paul Peter and James refer to themselves in their letters that we have in the New Testament. James begins his letter this way. James, a servant, bond servant, some translations, other translations, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter begins his second letter. We're reading from his first letter, but he begins his second letter this way. Simon Peter, a servant, some translations bondservant, others slave, and apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul begins his magnum opus, the book of Romans, this way. Paul, a servant bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ. Lest we think for a moment that Peter had such a high view of himself, thinking of himself as the rock upon which Jesus was going to build his church. Lest we think that James, the brother of Jesus, saw his status as the brother of Jesus, therefore would give him some inflated view of himself. No, lest we think Paul, the greatest missionary the world had ever known, would see himself as that great missionary. No, these three men all had consistent views of themselves in relation to God. For the gospel of Jesus had humbled them, and they saw themselves as slaves of their master. Back in 2007... John MacArthur preached a sermon entitled, Slaves for Christ. He makes a compelling case for the proper translation of this Greek word. The Greek word is doulos. It literally means slave. 
But very few of our English Bible translations will translate that word as slave, especially if the word is being used in relation to God, how we relate to God. Most translations will refer to that word as servant. Now some use the phrase bond servant, which is closer to slavery. But 1 Peter 2.9 says that we belong to God. He possesses us. We're not his hired workers who clock in and then clock out after we finish serving him. We don't get a paycheck from God. He is beyond just being our boss. The Lord God is our master and our king. Therefore, we are his slaves. Now, no one wants to be considered a slave to anyone. Our own nation has been impacted worldwide. There's still human trafficking and slavery. Slavery is not a positive thing to even think about. In fact, one of our discipleship distinctives at our church is freedom, not bondage. Servant just sounds a lot better, doesn't it? One of our favorite verses in the Gospels Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It just doesn't have the same ring to it if you have, well done, my good and faithful slave. Same Greek word, doulos. Servants have a lot in common with slaves. Servants work. But the biggest difference between a servant and a slave is that slaves are the property of their master. You see, many people, even church people, we get it backwards, especially in our country, the United States of America. We have this idea that God is our personal cosmic genie that we can tell what to do. People think that God exists to serve us, to meet our needs, to make us happy. No, we exist for God and His glory. Isaiah 43, 21 says in the ESV translation, The people whom I formed for myself. God did not make us for us. God made us for Him. That they might declare my praise. Titus chapter 2 14, we read that Jesus, our Savior, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, that we are not our own, that we're bought at a price. Because Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. We are his slaves, but we are more. Secondly, we see from this passage, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, that you are the Lord's God's friend, his treasured possession. 1 Peter 2.10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. We're His chosen race, 
his beloved child, a royal priesthood, his holy nation, his holy bride. That is who we are. Yes, we belong to him as his slaves, but we are more than that. We are God's very own special treasured possession. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. This is how the Lord spoke to Moses about how the Lord saw the people of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So out of all the people on the face of the earth, the Lord God has chosen his people, the Israelites. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, those here who know Jesus Christ, he has chosen you that you might be his treasured possession. You see, the Lord, though we are his servants, though we are his slaves, doesn't treat us like we are his slaves. He treats us with mercy. He lavishes his love on us. Jesus says something remarkable in John chapter 15. Look there, John 15, 12 through 14. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus laid down his life for us. There's no greater love in all the world than that. Jesus gave his life for you, for me. He lays down his life for sinners whom he refers to as his friends. Could sinful, broken, rebellious people like us be called the friends of Jesus? Well, yes, because I stopped reading in verse 14 in John 15, but he says, no longer I call, do I call you servants. That's doulos. Same word, slave, bondservant. For... The slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. He calls us friends and we're unworthy to be called his friends because we're slaves. The book of James tells us how one man was called the friend of God. Look at James chapter 2. James 2, that's that section about faith without works is dead. There, verse 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. When you and I believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus died in our place, on the cross, that Jesus rose from the dead. When we believe that, when we put our whole weight into that truth, 
Just as Abraham believed the promises of God and it was counted to him as righteousness, when you and I, church, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, we then are counted, declared righteous by God. The righteousness of God is placed upon us by God's grace through our faith in Jesus. So when the Father looks at us, he sees the sinless perfection of Jesus. And like Abraham, we are called the friend of God. Jesus laid down his life for you, his friend. Who am I that you are mindful of me, that you hear me when I call? Is it true that you are thinking of me, how you love me? It's amazing that I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. Is that amazing that he calls us a friend? He calls us his friend. Me. Cade, a sinner saved by his grace, who fails and falls down and struggles. He sees me not as I am. He loves me. I'm his chosen, beloved child. He loves you that way. That is identity in Christ. It will change your life. Yes, he is our master. We are his slave, but he treats us as friends. Wow. Number three. We're told in the text, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, that you are an exile in this world. You are an exile in this world. Now, I know on the surface, this sermon's like, man, how encouraging is this? You said I'm a slave, pastor, and now you're telling me I'm an exile. I'm, that's what the Bible says, all right? I'm a Bible preacher. If the Bible says it, I believe it. So we are an exile, an alien, not an outer... Out of, now, some of you may feel like an out-of-space alien, but um, an alien in that you are in a place, a country that's not your home country. You're in exile. You're a sojourner. You're somebody who's, who's passing through, passing through. That's who we are in this world. Abraham was a friend of God. Because he believed in the promises of God. But Abraham was also a sojourner. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 11. Abraham was a stranger. He was in exile. And so are we. Hebrews chapter 11 is that great chapter of faith. By faith. By faith. By faith. The writer looks at all these wonderful characters from the Old Testament. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham... When called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Let's stop for a second. When God says go, go. Even if you don't know where you are going. That's what faith is. That's what obedience is. He just started traveling west from Mesopotamia toward the land of Canaan. He had no idea where he was going. But when he got there, God says, here it is. 
And we kind of would think, okay, I guess he's going to put his roots down there in that promised land. It was his inheritance. Well, no, he didn't actually. Look at verse 9. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac, that's his son, and Jacob, that's his grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. I mean, that's his promised land. Why is he living in a tent? He should be in a big old house, right? Well, no, look at verse 10. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You know, we're looking forward to a city as well. How did John describe that city in Revelation 21? And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We're waiting for a city by faith. Just as Abraham lived in a tent Along with Isaac and Jacob, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 writes that we too have a tent, that we were made for more for eternity. Look at verses 1 and 2, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. We may lose the earthly tent, but we got a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Jesus says, I've gone to prepare a place for you, a dwelling place. A tent is temporary. We live in a tent if we're camping. And we camp for a season and we come back to our home, the structure We groan in this body. We long to put on immortality. We look forward to the new heaven and new earth. Death is swallowed up in victory because of the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Our bodies physically will be sown perishable, but they will be raised imperishable. The Bible tells us in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. That's why we're exiles on this earth. We're citizens of a different kingdom. He says in Philippians 3, 20, 21, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are we waiting on him? Because he's coming back to set up his kingdom, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, this world out of control, Jesus can bring Putin under control. And anybody else who wants to raise their fist against God, he says, I will put you under control. He is the king. He is the sovereign Lord. And he will put everything under his control. He will transform our lowly bodies. Some of us may be really proud of our bodies. (laughs) But they're lowly. And he's going to transform them that we will then be like his glorious body. This is our hope. This, our hope is not in this life, this 70, 80, 90 years that we're going to live. This is not what it's all about. 
And the world says it is. There's more. We're made for more. We're made forever. Glorified bodies reigning with Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Peter 2.11. So we're, get this idea about us being exiles from our text. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's who we are. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We are to live differently than the world. Why? Because we're set apart from the world. We're to be holy as God is holy. Jesus says we're going to be hated and that the world hated him first. Peter says as exiles we're to abstain from sinful passions. We are God's chosen children, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, his royal priesthood, the bride of Christ, the slaves of Jesus, the friends of Jesus, the Lord's treasured possession. Let us live up to our calling. We were made to be different as exiles, as aliens, as strangers, as sojourners in this dark and weary world. Let us instead be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let us shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But lastly, you and I are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. We're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Now the first part of verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9, tells us who we are in Christ. And knowing our identity, embracing who God says we are, thinking and living from our identity in Jesus will produce life transformation. Last week I said when we discover or remember who we are, we will become who God wants us to be. Look again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have made evangelism too difficult. Evangelism, when you, have, when you know your identity, when you know who you are and whose you are, Evangelism is simply speaking about how awesome the Lord God is, who He is, what He's done in your life. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Him, the one who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Evangelism is more than a script to memorize and recite to people. We are to represent Jesus to this world, this world that desperately needs his love and grace. We need his love and grace. So does the world. Therefore, we are his ambassador. An ambassador is a person who represents the interest of their kingdom. If our citizenship is in heaven, then we are here on earth to bring the principles of heaven 
to earth. We are here as Jesus taught us to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are here to be salt, to be light, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We are to represent Jesus to this world. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We looked at the first two verses about the tent. Let's look at the last two verses of this great chapter. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, says verse 20. That's our identity. I was a royal ambassador as a boy in my little Baptist church. And we're all royal ambassadors of Jesus. God making his appeal through us. The Holy Spirit of God making an appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And how might we be reconciled to God? Verse 21 tells us the gospel in one verse. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That is our message. The mandate is that he might make his appeal through us, church. We are the ambassadors of Jesus. Now, I sang kind of an older praise song, but I grew up singing hymns, and I love hymns because I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. And I love to tell the story because I know tis true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. We tell the story because the story is so satisfying. Because we are satisfied customers of this king of ours. We are his Slaves, but his friends. We are exiles, and our hope is in him. Citizens of heaven, we're his treasured possession. When you are satisfied daily with the love and mercy and grace of God, that gives you such strength that you then might love to tell the story. Believe, church, what God says about you. Embrace your identity and you will declare the excellencies of Jesus. We are his ambassadors. Let us represent him well. Father, I pray today that we would continue to know who we are. And from that incredible place of assurance, that truth would set us free. That we are all called to be your ambassadors. And though we are unworthy, and though you are our master, and though three great men in the Bible saw themselves as slaves of you, God, Jesus, you say, I don't call you a slave anymore. You're my friend. Because I lay down my life for you. Lord, help us to live knowing that this world as it is right now is not the final purpose. God, people need to know that Jesus is coming back. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And use us, I pray. 
as your ambassadors. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand now as we sing?